welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. You know, in recent years, aging research has seen some major advancements, including the discovery that the rate of aging is controlled, at least to some extent. And according to Dr. Paul Clayton, who has research written and presented about the process of cellular aging, your chronological age and your biological age are not necessarily the same. He says some people age faster than their calendar years, while others age more slowly. Dr. Clayton is a clinical pharmacologist and a pharmaconutritionist, and he joins us now. Dr. Clayton, welcome to the NutraCast. Thank you, Daniel. Happy to be here. So I know it's a pretty complicated topic, but can you kind of break down the process of cellular aging? (laughs) That's the kind of question that opens up into a whole library of research (laughs) and data and ideas. But uh, let's, let's start the initial breakdown. You can, I think consider uh, genetic factors because there is some evidence, uh, quite, quite good evidence, I think, for an endogenous clock, um, a genuinely biological clock, which is driven by uh, in the body by various rhythm setting systems uh, in, in the brain. And in cells, there may be something similar. But then there is also a huge extrinsic component because the the machinery, both intracellular and intercellular, which is where we start to get clinical, uh, these can be modified and modulated by all kinds of environmental inputs. And most of them, of course, are dietary, not all of them. Uh, there are other lifestyle issues as well, such as levels of physical activity, smoking and or air pollution, stress, uh, which is a, a serious aging uh, a component as well. But many of these can be modified. Many of those problems can be ameliorated using pharmaconutritional tools. What uh, are those uh, nutritional tools? Before I, I start getting into the, the actual tools that we use in detail, let me go a little further and dig down to the next level and look at what is actually happening in the cell and between the cells that constitutes the bulk of the aging process as we can see it. Now, I know that uh, people talk about telomere shortening and that does probably in the far distance set a chronological limit, the number of times your cells can divide before you run out of telomeres, unless of course you can find a way of switching telomerase on without triggering problems of uncontrolled cellular multiplication. Mitochondrial senescence is a factor as well that may be more important in certain disease states and is almost certainly exacerbated by the presence or absence of certain nutritional factors. Now telomere shortening and mitochondrial senescence, so I'll just take those two to start with. There's clearly an oxidative and certainly an inflammatory component that drives both of those sub-processes and that makes them amenable to intervention and modification. There is actually some pretty good evidence that both of these processes can be slowed using uh, pharmaconutritional tools, including the omega-3 highly unsaturated uh, fatty acids and the the polyphenols. And if you combine those two, and specifically if you combine the omega-3 long chain fatty acids with lipophile polyphenols, there's not many of those, uh, I'd include the fluorotannins and some of the olive polyphenols, you get even better anti-inflammatory effects. Now the impact of that combination 
hasn't yet been trialed on telomere shortening and mitochondrial senescence, but I'm pretty certain that it's going to prove to be very effective. Then subroutine number three, uh, as the cells get older, there is a reduced expression of mRNA splicing factors, and that leads to a sort of slowing down of many elements of the cellular machinery. But now we're starting to see some evidence that there are some carotenoids and certain polyphenols, which seem to be able to upregulate the expression of those mRNA splicing factors. And so it appears that this subroutine is amenable to pharmaconutritional intervention as well. Then we got on to the accumulation of senescent cells. Some people call these zombie cells. And these are cells which should have committed suicide because they've reached the end of their working life. But for whatever reason, the apoptotic mechanism or, or there are other mechanisms of cell death as well. There's about a dozen of them, but most people are more familiar with apoptosis. But for whatever reason, it hasn't worked. The cell is sting, still sheltering in place. It's lingering on. It's no longer contributing very much to the general welfare and well-being of the tissue, let alone the individual. But what it is doing, it's generating inflammatory factors locally, which are not very good for you, which contribute to the gradual destruction of the healthy tissue around it and eventually will emerge in some sort of clinical symptoms further down the line. Now, this is interesting because there are a number of phytonutrients which seem to be very good at selectively killing off the senescent cells. They're known colloquially as zombie killers, it's not my terminology. I'm not particularly comfortable with it. But, uh, you know, people love zombie movies. Anyway, it turns out that there's a group of um, compounds, most of them polyphenols, that seem to be actually pretty good at selectively requesting that these cells do the decent thing, retire into the library with a pearl-handed revolver, and finish themselves off. And that frees up the rest of the tissue to become less metabolically demanding and actually more functional. But out of all these subroutines, I think probably the next one is the most important, and that is deterioration of the extracellular matrix. Now, the ECM has been a hot topic for um, uh, quite a few years now because it's a physiological system. It's about probably the most recently discovered physiological system. It's an organ in its own right. It's a three-dimensional mesh of microfibers that permeates every cubic micrometer of your body. And basically, is your soft skeleton. It holds all your cells together in the correct orientation so that they can communicate with each other, coordinate and function collectively as a tissue or as an organ. Everybody knows collagen. That's one of those fibers, but there's 10 or 11 types of collagen, and there's a whole bunch of other fibers as well. So this matrix is a very complex, very beautifully structured uh, physiological system. It has different proportions of different fibers in different parts of the body, uh, depending on what type of functionality is needed in that particular part of the body. And you can think of this as you know, a composite material. It's almost like the fibers in fiberglass. If this matrix is damaged, then the center cannot hold. The tissue becomes disorganized and it is lost. It's dissolved by the matrix metalloprotease enzymes, and these are produced at, towards the end of the cascade of events that we call chronic inflammation. As the matrix is broken down, if this is occurring in cartilage, the, the structure of the cartilaginous discs in your joints starts to degrade and you move towards osteoarthritis. If this is happening inside uh, bone, for example, you're progressively losing osteoid, which we can see in x-rays as the progressive loss of bone mineral density, and you're moving towards osteoporosis. If this is happening in the lining of an artery, you're developing ulceration, atheroma, hypertension, and all the rest. So for most of us, for most of the time, the bulk of the phenomenology 
of aging, as, as we see it in the 21st century in the OECD nations, the bulk of it is actually due to the breakdown of this matrix. And when you look at the aging process in that way, it's most obviously comparable with the fraying of a cheap fabric. It is these fibers that hold us all together that are breaking down that constitute, that's the bulk of the aging process. That is what contributes to the age, wrinkling of skin, for example. And uh, you know all the other pathologies that I was talking about. And this is why we say that chronic inflammation is at the core of, of the aging process. Now, the, this, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because the ECM is not inside the cells. It's outside the cells, but it's what's holding all the cells together. And it gives them, as I said, the correct orientation, allowing them to coordinate and to function collectively. And this is actually far more important as a component in the overall aging process. And this is what fills up the hospital wards. This is what accounts for the bulk of the pharmaceutical industry's profits. And this, I think, is actually one of the most interesting areas to target using pharmaconutritional tools, which we now can do, and very successfully. You can add to these five subroutines, just as two more, but they're not really intracellular, they're extracellular, but they include metabolic deterioration and endocrinological age-related rundown. But I think that's a little bit outside the, the description of the conversation that you wanted to have. So for the moment, I'll leave them to one side. But I just want to reiterate these first five steps, telomere shortening, mitochondrial senescence, the reduced expression of mRNA splicing factors, senescent cell accumulation, and progressive damage to the extracellular matrix. These account for a very large part. How does one dissect this interconnectedness inside the matrix and their relative contribution to aging? How do you separate them all out? I think that whereas all, a lot of the research really focused on the telomere shortening, mitochondrial senescence, and the splicing factor issue, I don't think that they are the bulk of the aging process that most of us experience. For most of us, I think the ECM progressive damage to the extracellular matrix is really the largest part of aging. And I think, I suspect that the accumulation of senescent cells might well be the second most critical factor. And both of these, we can intervene in very easily and very safely using nutritional tools, pharmaconutritional tools. Can they be manipulated? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you can switch off chronic inflammation in most parts of the body using a combination of omega-3 highly unsaturated fatty acids and fat-soluble polyphenols. You use a different approach to alleviate this chronic inflammatory stress in the large bowel where it is largely driven by dysbiosis. And you can very easily and very quickly put that right using a blend of time-release prebiotic fibers. What that does is it switches the microbiome over from being gram-negative dominant to being gram-positive dominant. And that is hugely anti-inflammatory in the gut. There's a couple of other sites of chronic inflammation in most people, and one of those would be deep intra-abdominal fat, sometimes now referred to as android fat. And we know that this particular pocket of adipose tissue, these pockets have a very uh, uh, high probability of being invaded by macrophages, which set up little pockets of inflammation and produce pro-inflammatory adipokines, chemicals, which get into the circulation and cause inflammatory stress in other parts of the body, which is why we think the apple shape seems to confer more health risk than, let's say, the pear shape. And the fourth source of chronic inflammation in most people is periodontal disease. And this is very often not thought of as a medical problem, but as a dental problem, but it's, it's medical. I mean, if when you brush your teeth and you spit into the sink and you see a 
spot of blood, that is not a minor issue at all. That's major because that is telling us that you have a dysbiosis in the mouth, you have chronic inflammation there, and this is a source of inflammatory compounds and bacterial toxins that is being produced very close to the brain. And we think that these compounds, uh, some of them are transported retrograde in the olfactory nerve into the brain, which is why periodontal disease appears to increase the risk of Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinsonism, and stroke. And you're also swallowing these compounds. They're getting into the rest of the body as well. And that is the link, we think, that binds periodontal disease with an increased risk of uh, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and resistant hypertension. So you need to put things right in the mouth as well. And any dentist will tell you this is very, very common. It gets more common with progressively older age groups and is the most important cause of, of tooth loss, much more than dental decay. It is a medical issue. And what people generally do is they'll go to the dental hygienist once or twice a year and endure the, uh, the pleasure of having their, the roots of their teeth scraped. I don't know if you've done that, Danielle, but it's excruciating. I really hate doing this. And for that reason, I and my colleagues, we've been looking for quite a long time now to find another approach to this problem. And one has turned up. Uh, it's basically derived from uh, edible seaweeds. And edible seaweeds contain a lot of interesting compounds, but one of the compounds they uh, do contain are fucodans and funerans. Now, these are polysulfated oligosaccharides, a little bit like heparin, and they act as nonstick compounds. If you've ever picked up seaweed out of the ocean, you know how slippery it is because mm -hmm. they're covered with these, this kind of biological Teflon. Now, when you consume those compounds, they get into the blood, into the saliva, bathe the roots of the teeth, and now your teeth are coated with Teflon or biological Teflon. And the bacteria in the dysbiosis of periodontal disease can't cope. They simply drop off the teeth. And after a day or so, the plaque is gone. And you can tell that by just chewing up one of those plaque disclosing tablets you get from your dentist. After two or three weeks, the tartar, which is mineralized plaque, drops off the roots of your teeth. The dysbiosis is gone. The bleeding stops. The inflammation is gone. And we think all those risk factors is gone as well. Now, when you damp chronic inflammation in all the tissues using this polyvalent approach. What we think is happening is that the extracellular matrix is no longer under attack. Now, instead of being catabolically dominant, we flip you over to anabolic dominance, and this matrix is constantly being rebuilt and regenerated. Now the matrix has a chance to actually accumulate. It's all to do with you know, basic cellular and tissue economics. And what we see under these conditions is that conditions that is that um, Diseases that we had always thought to be progressive and degenerative are clearly not. They go into remission, and then in very many cases, we start to see the real improvement. We see atheroma melting, for example. We see the intraarticular space uh, with patients who had osteoarthritis. We see it starting to show signs of an increase. It, it looks as if many of those conditions that we thought of as being intrinsic parts of the aging process are actually epiphenomena. They're not actually a core of the aging process at all. They can be stripped away. And what you then conclude is that a lot of what we think of as aging is actually not biological aging. It's the results of chronic intoxication. And that is largely caused by this terrible, terrible diet that we now eat containing so many ultra processed foods. It sounds like there's a good amount of evidence or at least research with dietary and lifestyle change that could make it possible then to reverse the progression of osteoarthritis and things like that? Is that what you're getting at? I have no doubt about it. Osteoarthritis runs, or if I was really wanted to labor the point, I would say limps in my family. My grandmother and my mother both required hip replacements. 
And I myself had gotten to the point where I couldn't actually sit in the car. I couldn't drive a car for more than about half an hour because it was too damn uncomfortable. I couldn't lie on my right side. If I was stepping out of a plane or a train, I couldn't step down onto my right foot. It was just too damn painful. And I was seriously beginning to think, oh my God, I'm going to need a hip replacement, just as my mother and my grandmother did before me. And then I started to really focus on these anti-inflammatory strategies and at the same time, which and thereby stopping the accelerated breakdown of the matrix in the cartilage and every other tissue as well. And at the same time, putting in place a multiple support program, a comprehensive micro and phytonutrient support program, giving the chondroblasts, the chondrocytes, everything that they need to create more um, ground matrix. So basically, I can, I can now run four miles again if I want to. Wow. So you were kind of late to the game with the polyphenols and the phytonutrient intake. So is that something that works after the fact then? I think that once you realize that degenerative disease is not entropic, it's not really a wear and tear issue, that it's to do with uh, chronic intoxication, then ideas we used to have about the difference between prevention and treatment, they kind of disappear. You see, it all now blurs into one. If you can change events so that um, Let's say we're talking about atheroma. Atheroma is building up probably over decades before it gets to the point where it's substantial enough to cause, let's say, angina of effort. If I were to use a pharmaconutritional program designed to remove atheroma from the arteries, and no one argues that that's not possible. You can do it in different kinds of ways, including plasma lipophoresis, which is very expensive, invasive, and not the right way to do it. But atheroma is dynamic, and even the medics know that. Then you could say, if this person had arrived at the point where they had symptoms, well, this is treatment. But if I'd got to that same person five years before, before they had the symptoms, I'd give them the same program, and I would prevent them from getting to the point where they had those symptoms, and that's prevention. But I'm using the same tools. So prevention and treatment, they're very different things. If you're starting from a pharmaceutical perspective, if you're starting from a pharmaconutritional perspective, you find that they actually blur into one, they become almost indistinguishable. It's a little more complex than that because clearly with many of these, many of these disease processes, there are event horizons. You reach points of no return. So that if the atheroma is growing and growing and growing, I can prevent it and reverse it up until the point that it's causing symptoms and I can still approach it and intervene even then. But if it's got progressed to the point where there's been an infarct, and there's been a loss of myocardial tissue, that's an event horizon. I, that I can't bring back. Mm. But a large part of these chronic degenerative diseases, and the largest part of them, is preclinical. That can be manipulated. There you can get into the system using these pharmaconutritional tools. And that's where I think our room for leeway and intervention is. I believe on the basis of the scientists that I've spoken to, the research that I've seen, and some of the work that I've done myself, that if we were able to improve nutritional status across the board in, let's say, North America, we could close down the bulk of the cancerous proliferation of hospitals, clinics, medical insurance companies that now covers the land. We now spend in this country approximately just under 20% of GDP on healthcare, an enormous, an enormous fiscal drag. If you go back to the 19th century, you find a population between 1850 and 1900 in England that lived about as long as we did. 
as we do now, but where they hardly had chronic degenerative disease at all because they didn't eat the junk that we do. We eat a pro-inflammatory, nutrient-depleted diet. They eat an anti-inflammatory, nutrient-rich diet, and they really didn't get degenerative disease. I mean, they did. About 10% of them did, and they had the 10% clearly that had genetic risk factors. But the bulk of them were so protected by their diet, they really didn't get that much diabetes or heart attacks or dementia or any of those kinds of things, those problems which fill up our hospital wards and clinics today. What factor would you say has the biggest influence on cellular health? Do you think it is diet? For most people, for most of the time, yes. I think that's pretty obvious. The It's very hard to separate out cellular health from systems and physiological health. I mean, I think it's a rather arbitrary thing to do because many of the processes of aging, the pathologies of aging are multicellular. They're, they're not just happening inside the cell. But with the development of anti-inflammatory techniques that you can use to slow a telomere shortening, and there are some data that says, even says you can actually reverse it and start to generate longer telomeres again. The idea that you can create new mitochondria and, re- and stop the accumulation of senescent mitochondria, the idea that you can upregulate the mRNA splicing factors and remove the senescent cells and stop the damage to the ECM, you can do all of this with pharmaconutritional tools. What is the end result if you do all of this in one subject? I don't know. No one's ever maybe found out because no one's done it yet. But I'm starting to self-experiment because I don't need ethics committee approval to do that. And um, so far, I seem, to, I seem to be doing all right. Now, that's not science, but it's, it's just a little bit of exploration. And hopefully, we'll be able to take some of these ideas and build them into proper prospective randomized clinical trials a little further down the line. Right now, I know there's a lot of focus with COVID-19 on immunity. Does our immune system experience cellular aging as well? Yes, it absolutely does. There is some really good preclinical work that shows that if you eat the SAD diet, the standard American diet, which causes chronic chronic inflammation, it accelerates the aging of the immune system, which makes it more likely that you will develop sepsis and septicemia. Uh, That's really interesting and very alarming because if you look at American public health, you see that life expectancy has been falling for the last three years and maybe a little bit of an uptick this year in some groups. But if you look at what the causes of death are that are increasing and cutting down on American life expectancy, they include diabetic complications, they include neurodegenerative diseases, they include the deaths of despair, of course, but right in there is also septis and septicemia. So this junk food diet that we're eating here is undoubtedly accelerating the aging of the immune system, and we're paying a heavy price for this. So the Western diet is to blame, you think, for a lot of those diseases? Well, it's not just the Western diet anymore, because if you go to Shanghai, Peking, or Beijing, or any of those, or Xi'an, or any of those places, you will see that the Western diet is everywhere, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. The food technologists have done a really good job. They've made these foods very delicious. A lot of people like to eat them. They're quasi-addictive, and you know that there are journals of food addiction. But the food companies, in my view, have been criminally irresponsible. They are committing a kind of uh, genocide through the foods that they are selling us. And the multinational food companies are now responsible for more disease and death than the tobacco industry. That's how bad things have become. And a large part of that is an acceleration of the aging process. A large part of that is through chronic inflammatory stress and the progressive deterioration of the ECM. So you've been researching and and self-experimenting for quite a while on this topic. What would you say is the most surprising thing that you've come across? 
in the very early days, uh, you know, almost a decade ago now, when we started to see cases of so-called degenerative diseases running in reverse, where things, conditions like essential hypertension, which we've always assumed was part of the aging process, went into reverse when it normalized. I mean, people who were drug dependent became drug free. The first few times we saw this kind of thing happening, it was really amazing. It really was. This was counterintuitive. It ran counter to everything that we had been taught at medical school. Uh, now it's kind of ho-hum, another case. You know, it's not exciting anymore. But when we started seeing these cases, yes, it was exciting. I went to medical school in 1968, a long time ago now, and uh, spent almost 10 years at university, maybe 11, collecting various degrees. And I think in all that time, and including a medical, uh, I went, went to medical school, you see, and in all that time, I don't think we spent more than 90 minutes working on nutrition. Back in the day, that was considered to be women's work and not entirely serious. But I was also spending time going to the veterinary classes, and there they were talking about the importance of nutrition in animal health. And I think maybe the rot set in there. I, I got hold of that idea, went back to medical school and asked my professors, why don't we do this? And they said, oh, this is not serious stuff. This doesn't apply to us. But I, I couldn't see why that would be the case. And uh, I've been sort of looking at this area and teasing away at it now for more than half a century. That's fascinating. So decades ago, they were talking about how important nutrition is for pets, but they still weren't addressing that for human health. Well, not so much for pets, but I'm talking about animal husbandry, economically important animals. So cows, sheep, pigs. If your animals are sick because of a nutritional issue or you know whatever it is, that hits you directly in the pocket. So the farmers are incentivized to um, manipulate and improve the animal's environment in a way to improve feed, food conversion, feed conversion ratios, uh, to reduce wastage. It's just cheaper, and they found it was far more effective to improve their nutrition in most cases than to try and treat them with drugs. I mean, the other thing is, you know, if your cow gets sick, you can't take it up to a specialist and put it in a CT scanner or an MRI scanner. Um, that just doesn't work. You need to have a more cost-effective approach. And I think that that encouraged veterinary scientists and the people who use their services, the farming community, to explore this world of nutrition. And they have come up with, um, with, with really a lot of evidence that people like me will look at and then perhaps extrapolate into the field of clinical medicine. The public health has been declining and getting worse and worse and worse. So almost all the chronic degenerative diseases over the last 50 years or even over the last century, they've become more common and they have become, um, they've increased in frequency, but they've decreased in latency. That is, we see them occurring in younger and younger groups of patients. So if I could just take you back to 1968 when I went to medical school, type 2 diabetes, I was taught, was a disease of old age. And now we see it in patients in their 40s, 30s, 20s, teens, pre-teens for God's sake. The average age of onset of dementia has fallen by 16 years in the last half century. The average age of onset of cataract surgery, I think, has fallen by a decade or so. Not surprising because there are so many more diabetics and the diabetic is so much more at risk of cataracts. But the incidence of almost every degenerative disease continues to increase. If we rely solely on pharmaceutical medicine, it's like trying to take these it's like to trying to, to, to patch up 
a system that is increasingly falling apart. We need to get the fundamentals right. And what that means is we have to get public nutrition into a better place. There is so much that we could do to improve public health. I certainly appreciate you taking some time out to join us here on the NutriCast. I've probably babbled on for far too long. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast on iTunes. And for even more Nutri-related content, you can always head to NutriIngredients-USA.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Danielle Masterson. And as always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.